We're blessed to have so many gifted people leading in worship. We're grateful for Benjamin. He's actually going to be leading worship in a concert um, seminar this week, so be in prayer for him. And um, Pastor Bob took some of our younger elders and some of the other elders for some training yesterday. It's just exciting to see what God's doing. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I want to welcome all of you. If you're visiting with us, we have plenty of extras. Just raise your hand. Be glad to give you one. You can keep this Bible. We want you to read it. Now, just wanted to note something. We have a congregational meeting coming up next Sunday night. One of the purposes of that is we're going to vote on our elders. We have two new elders that are up for proposal. Their bios are in the uh, sheet about the meeting. If for some reason you can't be here next Sunday night, I'm going to need a note from your doctor. But in addition, um, I want to invite you to uh, sign up in absentia and vote. The table is right outside there. So if you can't be here, but watching the football game is not a good excuse. That's what DVRs are for. So hope that you'll be here. Uh, also, one other thing I wanted to mention, if you have not yet signed up for our, our study called How People Change, it's not too late, but it's getting there. Tonight is the first night. Um, it's going to be offered tonight, Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, and Thursday morning. There's, it's closed for tonight. There's already too many people. Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, Thursday morning are open. There's 110 people that are signed up for Tuesday night. And you can still get a book. You can go out to the newcomers or the welcome center, or you can go online. But hopefully you'll be participating with us. We're really looking forward to that. Also, if you're a newcomer, next week is our newcomer gathering at the 11 o'clock service. So here we are in 1 Timothy 6. This will be our last message from this book. And we said that the theme of this book is, is the blueprint for building a church. But I want you to note that building a church is not seeing how many people you can get. I watched a volleyball game this week, and I noticed that one team had a lot more players than the other team, probably twice as many. But yet, the team with less players won because the team that had a lot more players did not have very many good players. And in the same way, that's a good analogy. God's design is not to get the church with the most people. But God's design is to build a godly church, a church of sound converts who know Christ, understand forgiveness, but then are being transformed, changed into the image of Christ with godly leadership and spiritual discipline and moving forward to advance the gospel in a way that honors Christ. So as Paul has given Timothy this challenge to a young pastor, he's like, look, I know there's a lot of problems in your church. There's false teaching. There's godly, godless living. You need to raise up elders. You yourself need to be an example. You need to lead the people in prayer. You need to care for the poor. Last week he said you need to rebuke these false teachers and make sure you don't fall into this love of money. But now at the end of the book, he's going to give Tam Timothy one last challenge. Timothy, hey, that's a nice name, my wife Tammy. But anyway, he's going to give him one last challenge. And Paul is fond of using several metaphors. Sometimes he uses sports for the Christian life. And I like that. Sometimes he'll compare it to running. He'll say 1 Corinthians 9, only one wins a prize, one that you may win. Man, I'm, my words are getting stuck today. Where's my coffee? So, sometimes he'll use boxing, 1 Corinthians 9. He goes, box not as beating the air. 2 Timothy 2, he says, don't entangle yourself. He said, an athlete doesn't get the prize unless he runs according to the rules. But he's also fond of using the military as a, as a picture of the Christian life. And I really like that. 
because being in the military, even back then, involved enlistment and engagement. So in 2 Timothy says, no soldier who's enlisted entangles himself in the affairs of this world. But then engagement in the battle. Now, as I thought about this, I thought, you know, that's a great analogy because a lot of people who enlist in the military enlist for different reasons. Some people enlist simply because they were a wild, bad kid whose parents said, you're going to reform school or you're going in the military or you're out. And they're like, okay, that's, that's what I'll do. Some enlist because of the promise of being put through college, which is, there's nothing wrong with that. Great. Be in the ROTC and then hopefully they'll put you through college. Some enlist because they want to fight for their country. After 9-1-1, there was this great resurgence or insurgence of people who were enlisting. I want to defend my country. But when the Bible talks about being in the Christian fight, there are two things. An enlistment, but also engagement in the battle. There are no reserves. And so what Paul's going to do is as he winds down this book, he's going to challenge Timothy using this metaphor from the military. He's going to say, I want you to fight the good fight. But the idea here is that he's going to remind him of when he first enlisted. He's going to remember back when you first joined the Lord's army. Now, in light of that, I want you to live out your Christian experience. This passage, something that I want you to, to make yourself familiar with, when the Bible talks about living out the Christian life, there are two oars to think about. If you only paddle with one oar, you're going to go in circles. Some people emphasize the passive side of depending on Christ. You can't do it. Only Christ can live through you. You have to depend on the Holy Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Jesus said, without me, you could do nothing. And that's true. So to be like Christ is going to be a work of grace in which I, I look to him for divine enablement. So that's the dependence or. But there are also passages in the Bible that strongly urge my diligence. Like you need to be in the game full speed ahead. Get involved. Discipline yourself. This is one of those passages. This passage is not really focusing so much on the grace of God actively working in us, but what God's calling us to do. Now, notice how Paul begins this call to not only remember your enlistment, but be engaged in the active fight. He says in verse 11, but, but flee from these things, you man of God. Now, when Paul uses the analogy of fleeing, he'll often follow with the analogy of pursuing. So he'll go on to say, flee and pursue. There's some things that you need to run away from, things that we're against, things that we turn away from. There are other things, though, that we are for, that we're called to cultivate and develop. It's similar, Paul uses the analogy from apparel. He'll say, put off this lifestyle, put on this lifestyle. Some Christians, they've got this down. They're against everything. I'm against this, I'm against that, I'm against that. But you also need to be for things. You need to be actively pursuing things. So let's see, first of all, what he tells Timothy to flee from. He says, flee from these things. And the question is, what is he talking about? Now, the immediate context was the love of money. But I want to suggest that he probably is thinking more than just the love of money because throughout the book, he's talked about a number of things, a number of sins, a number of sinful lifestyles that we need to truly say, Lord, help me to really consciously Run from them. There are certain things in life that are very, very dangerous. 
And to even dilly-dally around them can lead to the destruction of your soul. And so, as you think about your Christian experience, ask yourself, are there any things that I, I'm with certain people in certain places at certain times, and the next thing I know, I'm finding myself falling into that. These are the things that God is saying, look, you need to flee from these things. Particularly, Paul uses this when he talks about sexual sin. He says, flee from youthful lusts. He doesn't say, go on the computer and browse around at 2 o'clock in the morning hoping maybe you'll find something interesting. He doesn't say, take your girl to a quiet place if you're not married and just you and her hang out and read the Bible. The Bible makes it very clear that sin is powerful. It sucks us in. And so the Bible says, make no provisions for the flesh. And so for some of you, you need to think through and you say, well, God promised me he will make a way of escape. I just keep falling into these sins and temptations. And I go, he has. It's called your feet. Flee from these things. Run for your life. Well, then Paul says, Timothy, remember, you're a man of God. And, and somehow you go, well, wait a minute. Is that word only used of preachers? This is the only time in the whole New Testament the phrase man of God is used. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, it's used a lot. It's used of prophets like Elijah or Elijah. But I want to suggest that man of God is not reserved for ministers. That every Christian, man or woman, should make it your ambition to become a man or woman of God, a godly person. And so Paul reminds Timothy, Christian, you're a man of God. So in light of that, he says, there's six qualities that I want you to cultivate in your life. And let's, let's briefly talk about them. Flee from these things and then pursue righteousness. Now, righteousness probably in this passage has to do with our relationships, doing what's right. So, I'm handling my finances properly. I, I, I'm practicing integrity towards others. I'm, I'm treating my wife right. Righteousness involves admitting when you're wrong, not blindly blaming others for your sin. I have to pursue that. I have to say, am I doing what's right? It's amazing how many times Christians will say things like this. Well, you know, the, the long-term goal was to do something right, but... But sometimes I have to do something wrong to get there. No, you never have to do something wrong, even if you're trying to do right. So I ask God, Lord, in every area of my life, help me to clothe myself and pursue righteousness in my dealings at work with my neighbors, my family, my kids, my friends. I want to do what's right. But then he says also pursue godliness. You will not become godly by accident. The Bible says discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. You will become godly as you think about this. As you pray, as you memorize scripture and have spiritual habits of discipline, and you say, Lord, I want to be more like God. I can't do it on my own, but I can't just let go and let God. Pursue faith. There's an active sense here. Faith here, some commentaries suggest he's talking about being faithful. But I don't think so. I think he's talking about the ongoing practice of faith. Christians live their lives by faith. Paul says, the life I live in the Flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And so it's this active trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and in all that he promised. And so some of the places that that will show up, if I'm pursuing a life of faith, when trouble comes into my life, I have an opportunity to respond in faith so that Jesus doesn't say to me like he said to the disciples, 
Why are you doubting? What happened to your faith? Where's your faith? So in order to pursue a life of faith, I need to learn and cling to God's promises. The Bible says when Satan comes against you, take the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit. And so maybe I'm feeling overwhelmed with condemnation. But wait, my faith tells me that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But I, I feel like I'm, I'm so worried about my future. But wait, God says, my God will supply all your needs. And so a life of faith is a life of saying, I want to live out the promises of God. I want to obey God as I trust him and seek to follow him. Then Paul says, pursue love. Now, if you were to ask Paul, which one's the most important? I, I assure you, he would say this one. Love is the pinnacle. It's the most important virtue. It's the one that Jesus said, if I'm going to boil it down, it's love God and love others. And this is something that you cultivate and you grow in. So you and I could ask something like this. Am I a more loving person now than I was two years ago? That doesn't mean when you see people, you're like, love you, man. Love you, bro. Love you. <laughs> Here's how you can tell. The Bible says love is patient. Love is kind. Are you kind to your spouse? Are you patient with your children? Are you patient with your coworkers? Love forgives. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. Are you more forgiving than you used to be? Or are you more irritable? Love does not seek its own. In other words, love is not selfish. Pastor John and I had a good laugh this morning because he just got back from a week at the beach. Sounds good. Except that he has two little boys. Any of you have ever taken children to the beach realize that it's not a vacation. It's fun, but it's not a vacation because you're constantly watching them. And, and Pastor John was lamenting the thing that we all lament. Why am I so selfish? I just want to sit and have my lemonade. Just leave me alone, right? And so when I drive home from work, I can't come into the house going, now it's my turn to kick back and everyone serves me. No, I'm called through love to serve other people. God will help you to grow in love, but pray about it. I pray all the time, dear God, you said in the Bible to pray that my love will abound, not with squishy quivers in the liver, oh, I love you, but practical Spirit-led fruit that says, I want to care for other people genuinely because God is at work. Do your coworkers see you as a, a loving person who cares about them? Do your neighbors see love in you? And then the last two, perseverance. This is that discipline that says, I'm going to endure with difficulty. Christians are never to quit. When you sign up for Christ, you don't go, I'm just going to do two stints of four years and then I'm out. You're in it for life. And part of the, the, the thing that God calls us to is to endure difficulty, whether it's in our marriage, whether it's with our health, whether it's with persecution from loved ones. God cultivates within us a growing character trait called endurance as we learn and even teach our children. There's a reason why we teach our children, no, you're not quitting because the coach is mean. You're not quitting piano lessons because you're bored. We, we want to cultivate this long-term loyalty to Christ that I'm in this no matter hell or high water. God, give me strength. Help me to cultivate perseverance. And then finally, he says, Timothy, I want you to pursue gentleness. 
Very unusual word. It's not used often in the New Testament. But it has the idea of a sweet reasonableness. I think a lot of people, including the Greeks in Jesus' day, gentleness was considered to be bad. You didn't want to be gentle. You were a wuss. You were weak. You were a doormat. And I think sometimes picture Jesus as this little Casper guy with, with a little white robe going, blessed are you. And we see a picture of him hanging on a cross with a little drop of blood. Stop this. Jesus Christ was all man. Head to toe, he was a man. He, he walked into a room full of people and separated them from their money with a whip. Don't try that. <laughs> Jesus was all man, but he was gentle. He said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke, for I am gentle. Gentle has to do with being reasonable and sweet. You know, it's interesting, because there are people I know who really know their Bibles. And they consider themselves to be very wise. Can I tell you something? If you're not gentle, you're not wise. You're like, how do you know that, Pastor Tom? Because the Bible says so. It says in James chapter 3, the wisdom that comes from God is, is pure and peaceable and gentle and reasonable. Are you reasonable and gentle with others? Or do you say, honey, I, I can't agree with you. Then we'd both be wrong. That's not Christ-like. That's not how we deal with our, our neighbors, our friends, with our children. Now, I get it. Some of you go, well, you don't understand, Pastor Tom. Yes, I do. I'm fighting the same battle you are, the flesh. But the spirit produces within us a gentleness. And you can imagine Timothy's got some, some ornery elders in these churches. Some of them aren't even saved, and he's got to rebuke them. He's got to resist them. And I could see him easily getting frustrated and just wanting to yell at them and, and punch them in the eye. And he's like, Timothy, pray that God will help you to have gentleness. So here he tells Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. In other words, don't just be enlisted, be engaged. Take up your weapons and get in the battle. Now, what would that look like? Well, first of all, he says, fight that fight of faith. You, 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 you're, you're believing God. You're living for God. You're believing that God's wanting to use you. But then he tells Timothy, here's what it's going to look like. Take hold of the eternal life. Wait a minute. Eternal life is like, it's invisible, isn't it? A lot of people have odd views of eternal life. First of all, eternal life is not a liquid that you drink, like Ponce de Leon. Goop, 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 right? But at the same time, it's not a bad analogy to think of eternal life as a substance like Gatorade. Remember the Gatorade commercial? Is it in you? Because the Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, this is the witness that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that has the Son of God has life. He that does not have the Son of God does not have life. And this is a great verse because many, many people in, in um, the non-Protestant tradition don't believe you can know you have eternal life. The Bible says, these things have I written to you who believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you may know you have eternal life. So eternal life is this quality of life that Christ is in you. You're not going to get it when you die. You already have it. Now Paul says, grab a hold of it. And, and, and ride that wave of eternal life. And I don't think there's something real spooky and mysterious here. I think he's just saying, take your Christian life 
with utmost seriousness. To the Philippians, he said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The Christian life that God would grant me eternal life and then say, live it out, brother. Live it out, sister. Live it out, child of God. So in order to encourage Timothy to engage, he reminds him when he was enlisted. He says, remember, take hold of the eternal life, verse 12, to which you were called. What does he mean by that? To become a Christian is a response to God's invitation. One of Jesus' favorite terms was, come unto me, come unto me, come unto me. And from a human standpoint, if you responded to the call of Christ, he drew you to himself and you repented and believed. The Bible calls that your calling. But what the Bible teaches is that your calling was divinely sourced first in God. You came to God because he called you in a special way. He calls everybody in a general way, but his own he calls in a special way. Romans 8 says, everyone he predestined, he called. And all those whom he called, he justified. So think back to when God called you to Christ and you responded. Some theologians call it an effective call. But notice that Paul says, so Timothy, think back when you enlisted. God called you and he says, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I think he's talking here about Timothy's conversion and baptism. All this nonsense where people go, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't talk about Jesus. I just live my life. Have you told anybody? No, I, Jesus doesn't, that's unacceptable. He doesn't invite undercover agents. To become a Christian involves making a confession. If you don't want to do that, then you might not be ready to be a Christian. Jesus said, he that is ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of him. He that confesses me before men, I will confess him before my father. And so Paul says, think back, Timothy, to the time when you made your good confession, when you said, the Lord has become my savior. It's most likely here he's talking about his baptism. And you know what fascinates me in our culture? How many Christians treat baptism as like some trivial buffet thing. It's not for all of us. That's unheard of in the scriptures. Jesus said, go and make disciples and baptize them. So for a person to say, no, I'm not getting up there and talking in front of people and getting in that water so Pastor Tom can dunk me. I'm like, wait, that's not, I'm not asking you to do that. Christ said, if you're going to follow me, confess me. So my question is a couple. Number one, you don't need to know when God called you. Maybe you were saved at nine years old. Maybe you're not sure. You made sure at camp. But if you, if, if, the biggest thing is, do you know that God has called you? Do you know you're saved now? And if you know you're saved, have you ever pledged your allegiance by making a confession? If you haven't been baptized, you know what was a joy at the last baptismal service where we had 10 people just recently? I think three or four people afterward came up and said, when's the next one? Put me in. Right? So I grabbed them. No, not now. No, I'm just kidding. No, sign me up. So if you haven't been baptized, we're not going to come chasing after you. Go, please, 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 please. You have to ask the Lord, why wouldn't I? Christ, you saved me. Now, so Paul tells Timothy, remember back. So think back on your conversion. Thank God. Whether it was at Hickory Springs camp when you were nine years old, or you're like, I don't know. I knew John 3.16 before I could talk, my parents. But you're a believer. You've enlisted. But that doesn't mean you're engaged. 
And if you've enlisted and you're not engaged in battle, then you're AWOL. Right? So, Paul reminds Timothy of his confession. And then, interestingly, he goes, and by the way, Timothy, think of Christ's confession. So he's going to challenge him to really fight the Christian life. Verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. I charge you that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until he appears. Now, I want you to think about this. We can stay back on that first page. So, why does Paul bring up Pilate? I mean, why not Herod? Jesus was in front of Herod. Jesus was in front. Jesus interacted with a bunch of people. Why Pilate? For whatever reason, God has chosen to use Pilate as sort of like the, the touch buoy from which we can remember Christ's magnificent, fearless confession that cost him his life. When Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? You say that I am. And soon after that, crucify him. So, so, so when Paul's remembering Christ's confession, he's not saying in every way it's exactly like ours. Christ did not confess to be saved. He didn't say, hey guys, mom and dad, I got saved today. But he made a confession of his loyalty to Christ. He made a confession of who he was that cost him his life. But as an interesting side note, this idea of him making this confession in front of Pilate began to stick in the history of the church based on passages like these. So some of you are going, wait a minute, I used to go to a church where we said the Apostles' Creed. Did you ever think about that? Why in the Apostles' Creed does Pilate get any press? It's not like he was a good guy. But for some reason, the Apostles' Creed involves, he, he testified before Pontius Pilate. And I think there's a reason for that because while Christianity does have mystery, 1 Timothy 3 says, Great is the mystery of godliness. Christianity is rooted in history. There's a real Pontius Pilate. There's a real Lord Jesus Christ. I never saw him, but a lot of people did. And they said he rose from the dead, and I happen to believe it. And so becoming a Christian doesn't mean you have to deny history and take off your faith or, or just take a leap of silly faith, but Jesus Christ made a good confession. And as I think of Christ as a lamb saying, hey, yep, that's who I am, and being willing to die, Paul says, Timothy, remember when you did that? Let that inspire you. Maybe, maybe, like others, you're tempted to lose your way. So he says, Timothy, here's what I want you to do. Keep the commandment without stain. Paul uses that sometimes, or James uses that. He goes, here's what it means to be religious. Are you religious? He goes, here's what religious people do. He says, visit orphans and widows when they're in distress and keep yourself unstained by the world. Don't be getting in the mud and muck of the sin of the world. And then he says, and keep, your, keep the commandment without reproach. This is the word that's used of a leader. That people can't point a finger at you and say, he's a hypocrite and he hasn't tried to make it right. But when he says keep the commandment, it's singular. He doesn't have one commandment in mind. He said the same thing at the beginning of the book. He said, I want you to keep the commandment. I think it's the contents of this book. But it's the broader apostolic Christian teaching. Every Christian is called to keep the faith, to believe the words of God, to be in prayer and following Christ and living for him. Well, how long? Four years, eight years? He goes, no. Now we'll go to the next passage. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. How long do I have to keep doing this? Simple. 
until he comes back. When's he coming back? Glad you asked. He'll bring it about at the proper time. Now, in the original, it literally says, in his own time. When are you coming back, Jesus? At my own time. But I want you to think about this when you hear young people planning a wedding. Jesus, when are you coming back? Well, I was thinking about the fall. You know, it would be nice to have the trees in the background. But then I was thinking it would be cool to come at Christmas, kind of like, you know, here I am again. It's already picked out. The day's already in God's calendar. Right? And what the Bible tells us is don't worry about what Harold Camping says. Be ready every day. So there are two appointments that I never want you to forget about. They're going to come about in God's time. The first one is our death. In Psalm 139, it says this. In God's book, all our days were written when there was none of them. Now, all of us probably are hoping, let it be a long way off. Let it be 50 years from now. I don't want to think about it. But the problem with that is the Bible says, don't boast about tomorrow. You don't know what a day will bring forth. So as I think about these key times that God goes, I didn't take a survey. I've got a day for you to die. That's why the Bible says to be ready. Because once you die, it's too late. There's no post-mortem rearrangements. If you have not made your peace with Christ, it's too late when you die. And so rather than gamble and say, well, you know, I'm not going to follow the Lord till I get older. That's a dangerous idea. There are plenty of souls in hell who thought they had more time. But even bigger than that, the Bible says in Acts chapter 17, Paul's preaching to these Athenian people and he says to them, I want you to know that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the entire world. And that's why he calls all men to repent. And so knowing that the coming of Christ, my death and the judgment of God are coming at his time, I'd better be in, in a right relationship with him. Amen. I want to I make my peace and surrender to him now. But I can imagine that one of the concerns that Timothy had was the looming persecution of the Romans. It wasn't long after this that Roman emperors began to kill Christians. And Roman emperors were demanding worship. Roman emperors were making claims about themselves. I mentioned this before. There are coins from the first century that say, Caesar is Lord. And you didn't have an option to say, no, I'm not, I'm, I'd rather just say Jesus is Lord. That might cost you your life. And so in the midst of these, these emperors who are claiming that they're immortal and that you should worship them, Paul says, don't worry about these silly emperors. Just worry about Jesus. He's on your side. I love this verse in Isaiah. He goes, why are you afraid of men? There's breath in his nostrils. It's like, that's true. We're just little, little creatures down there. <laughs> God goes, don't be afraid of Caesar. You're on the side of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? He's the blessed and only sovereign. So Timothy, engage in this Christian life because Jesus alone is the Lord. That's the only time this word is used. He's the great sovereign, not Caesar. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. You're on the Lord's side. You belong to the king. Caesar doesn't possess immortality. He alone, Jesus, possesses immortality. And I love this one. And he dwells in unapproachable light who no man has seen or can see. Think about the brilliance of the glory of Jesus. This will sort of change your paradigm a little bit. Jesus Christ is not J.C. to bomb the man upstairs. Whenever people saw Jesus in the Bible, 
they had the same response, bam, on their face. John said in Revelation chapter 1, I turned and beheld him, and I fell at his feet as a dead man. How many of you got a chance to, during the eclipse, take a peek upward? Come on, stop acting like you didn't do it, right? Even us morons who didn't have a lens, somebody said, just do it real fast, right? <laughs> somebody tell me you did it too, stop. Okay, I read a great illustration. It said, Jesus Christ is like the sun, but thankfully he's also a lens so that I can get a glimpse of God. The Bible says no man has seen God at any time. We sing holy, holy, holy. Though the eyes of sinful man your glory may not see. But even though we can't see him in all of his glory and his holiness and his fullness, we can still see him. Because when we gaze upon our beautiful Lord Jesus Christ, he's that filter by which I can come to God and worship. And so Paul says, don't worry about these emperors. To him, Jesus alone, be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And so I could see Timothy going, okay. But then we saw last week in 17 through 19, because we lumped together the idea of, of money. Don't hoard and stockpile. Be generous. Again, Paul says, take hold of eternal life. But we're going to move down to verse 20. And again, don't miss the big picture. You've already enlisted but you need to be engaged or else you're AWOL. As Paul closes this book, he still, once more, he says, oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. I recently saw Elsa from Frozen at a play. I asked her to hold my balloon. Just guard it for a few moments. I'll be right back. Came back, she didn't have the balloon. I said, what happened? She said, I let it go, I let it go. <laughs> Why did I tell that? Because you can't let the gospel go. But you know what? It's possible. As soon as you compromise anything in the scriptures, you're letting it go. As soon as we say, oh, you know what? Our culture tells us that, it's, that we can be open Christians, that we shouldn't be judgmental. Some people have gender preferences and sexual preferences, and, and we can't go by that old fashion stuff about marriage and about sex. And I'm going, yeah, we can, and we'd better. Otherwise, we're not guarding the word of God. We say, oh, well, we live in such a pluralistic time. Aren't there lots of ways to go to heaven? Come on, we can't be narrow. People will think we're haters. And I go, no, we're not being narrow, we're being biblical. We're called to hold to the full counsel of God. Guard what has been entrusted to you. And by the way, when God entrusted his words to you, he did not intend for you to hide them on a shelf. The Bible says, since God has entrusted us with the gospel, we must speak, not as pleasing men, but God. So on judgment day, the Lord's going to say, hey, how'd you do with the gospel? You're like, oh man, Lord, I held it tight. He said, did you share it with anybody? No. Remember what happened to the last guy who was entrusted with talents and buried it? Master, I knew you were exacting. Didn't go so well with him. God's not asking you to go to the train station and beat people with the Bible, but we need to share our faith, to, to tell people we're Christians, to invite people. Hey, could I invite you to church? Could, could I share with you a verse from the Bible? Could we sit down sometime and talk about the word? And then he says to Timothy, avoid all this worldly chatter and opposing arguments of what's... Now notice, this is really interesting. So these false teachers, they're pretty smart, huh? Yeah, probably had a PhD. 
And Paul goes, listen, here's the problem with them. Their chatter and arguments, he says, it's falsely called knowledge. Now, they didn't say that. They didn't say, hey, you want to listen to my false knowledge? And I really like something I read this week. This one commentary said something like this. He said, there are people who are really wise in certain disciplines, but he said, they need to stay in their discipline. I'm just going to use this expression. Stay in your lane. If you're really good at nuclear physics, stay with nuclear physics. If you're really good at biology, that's great. If you're, if you're grand at mathematics, but don't assume that anybody, simply because they're intellectual in one area, can then transition into spiritual truths and have the same authority. There are a lot of people today who, who are commanding the attention of Americans, like Stephen Hawking. They might be really smart, but in God's mind, they're fools. Not mine, God's mind. And so we need to understand that there are some people that appear to be really smart, and Paul says that's false knowledge. Here's an example from my own experience. I like to read Bill O'Reilly. My wife has read Killing Lincoln. We've both read Killing the Rising Sun. He's an interesting historian. He's got another guy doing research for him, but he's, he's fun to read. But when he got out of his discipline was when he decided to write Killing Jesus. And then he decided to speculate about what his view is of Jesus. Sorry, Bill, you're off the team. That's falsely called knowledge. You're not teaching the words of God. And so Paul says to Timothy, turn away from these things because what happens is many have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. You know one of the saddest things in American culture right now is many young men go off to a liberal seminary and turn away from the faith. They come, they come back more confused and mixed up than when they first went. Don't assume just because somebody's religious or smart or has a degree that they're telling us the truth. But then Paul closes with encouragement to Timothy. He says, grace be with you. At the beginning of the book, he said, grace to you. At the end of the book, like two beautiful, you know, bookshelves that are just holding it all in. It's all by grace. So this morning as we close, I want us to just think about how we could apply this. Number one, Paul tells Timothy, remember back to your enlistment. Do you remember back to your conversion? You don't have to know when it is, but do you know that you're soundly saved? Have you ever made a public confession of that? Have you ever stood before others and said, yes, I am a follower of Christ? Have you ever realized that you were a sinner, that you couldn't save yourself, and that you were willing to turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone? Maybe you're doing that right now. But in just a moment, Benjamin's going to come. I'm going to, we're going to sing a simple song. I have decided to follow Jesus. It's just an opportunity for you, if you've never made a public profession that I am a Christ follower, to do that. It's not going to save you. You're not going to go to hell if you don't do it. But I assure you, it's for your benefit. I'm not going to say, oh, we got soul scalps today. The Bible talks about professing your faith and standing before others and making a good confession. Some of you might just say, in coming, I want people to know that I was saved, even if it was a year ago, or I've just never told anyone I'm saved. But secondly, many of you are saved. And Paul says, are you fighting the good fight? You're like, well, you know, I've given up on my marriage, or I've given up on, you know, trying to be honest, or I don't really read the Bible much, or, you know, I only go to church if it's nice, and the kids aren't playing, and the beach isn't nice, you know. We have to recalculate and say, Lord Jesus, my walk with you is my calling. 
and he will give us divine enablement. And we'll go out as we fight together as growing Christians. The gates of hell will not prevail. We'll stand firm in the Lord with prayer and faith and the words of God, and the gospel will continue in advance. And this church will continue to move forward, holding out the word of life in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So pray for me. Pray for our pastors. Pray for our leaders. Pray for your family. Pray for your marriage. Pray for hurting people. Pray that we can fight this good fight and hold out the whole counsel of God. Amen. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing together. And if, if you've made a profession of faith, in your heart, but never publicly confess it. Just come and stand with me. We won't make a big deal out of it, but I certainly want to allow the Holy Spirit to work. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for your word. And we all needed to hear this, Lord, to be stirred up, to take seriously the habits of grace, like prayer, to confess our sins, to rejoice that we're on the Lord's side to remember our enlistment, to remember our Lord who made a good confession and was raised from the dead. We love you, Lord Jesus, and pray that if the Spirit has moved anyone here, that they might feel free and full of the Spirit to come and confess that they are a Christ follower, that they've been called to eternal life. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. As we sing this song together, don't just think about, oh, if somebody comes, but also think about what we're saying. This is what we pledged to when we came to Christ. 